All right, Joshua, thank you so much. Well, the elephant in the room last week that really didn't get any, any uh, mention from the platform was the uh, overhaul of the bell towers. And it closed off our east entrance last week. They're open now, and there's still some finishing work needing to be done there. But thanks for your patience last week and, and throughout the weeks uh, with the Wednesday night, that entrance being closed. Uh, but I also want to thank the finest facility team, Don Gabrand, who kind of led the charge uh, on that. Our trim getting painted, uh, they look a whole, whole lot better. Tonight, I also want to invite you back tonight at 6. We're having a dessert fellowship or prayer and share fellowship is what we call those. Uh, just a time to come together, uh, enjoy one another, uh, hear a testimony or two, hear a little bit about what's going on ministry-wise at our church, and really tonight uh, have a time of focused uh, prayer. So come back at 6. I know it's going to be a beautiful day. Uh, we won't be uh, really, really long tonight. Um, we'll uh, pack uh, everything in maybe in an hour or so. Uh, but enjoy some dessert. Bring some dessert to share. That'd be great, and we'll have a good time together. So this morning is really part two. If you, if you want to turn to the book of Mark, you can. Mark chapter 3. We're actually uh, closing out the third chapter this morning, so that's exciting. And this actually serves as part two to the passage that we begun, began studying last week. And I want you to know what a tremendous blessing it is for me to teach God's Word to you each week. I, I truly love it. Thanks for being here to listen and to worship together uh, and be a part of all of this. And if you're visiting with us today, I should tell you that we're entrenched in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the second book found in the New Testament, and as we've said, it was most likely the first of the four biblical Gospels that were written, probably sometime between 60 and 65 AD. It was written from Rome, and its original audience was Roman Christians. Roman Christians under persecution by the emperor Nero. And the book was penned, of course, by John Mark, sometimes referred to as Mark, uh, who, according to the book of Acts, John Mark had some struggles early on in his ministry. But as the New Testament era moved along, Mark ended up being a very faithful servant. His most prominent position was serving as a sort of secretary for the apostle Peter. And so Mark had heard Peter preach the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. And and what we have here in this book is a record of what Peter would have preached time and time and time again as as he evangelized the ancient world. So this is Peter's eyewitness testimony of Jesus brought to us by Mark. And as you can see, easily observe actually, Mark is by far the shortest of the four Gospels, both in numbers of chapters and in number of actual words. But despite being shorter, it actually manages to contain the most action. In Mark, Jesus is constantly on the move, on the move, always healing and always acting, always sort of disrupting the status quo. The word immediately uh, comes up 42 times in the book. So it's a book of action. Immediately Jesus is going here. Immediately he's going there, moving from scene to scene to scene as he establishes himself as this authoritative king over all things. And as Mark writes this account of Jesus' life, there's a certain literary device that shows up six times. And the technical term for the device is a chiasm. And and a chiasm, they're actually found all over the Bible. A chiasm is simply an observable sort of symmetry in a passage or book. 
Some scholars have suggested that the whole Bible is one giant chiasm, and I don't know if I'd go that far. But the way I'll explain Mark's use of chiasm is by having you, at least in this passage, is by having you think of an Oreo cookie. Everyone think of an Oreo cookie? That'll help right there. An Oreo cookie. Everyone loves an Oreo cookie, right? Glass of milk and a stack of Oreo cookies. That's a strong Sunday afternoon right there. Let me just encourage you in that direction today. But the Oreo cookie, you know, it's actually two cookies. You have a top cookie, and then the cream in the center, and a bottom cookie. And the bottom cookie is basically the same as the top cookie. And it's not really important right now to get into how you eat your Oreo cookie. You know, there's a lot of different ways to eat an Oreo. Everybody kind of has their way. Uh, I take off one of the cookies. I eat the cookie and cream side, and then I use the other cookie to dip in the milk. That's how you're supposed to do it, if you need to know. But... Um, Everybody has their way. Not important. Point is, the top and the bottom are the same, and they sandwich the content that's in between. And the content in between, in both the chiasm and in the Oreo, the content in between is sort of the star of the show. This is why the double stuff Oreo exists, right? Nabisco figured out, oh, we put more cream in, we sell more cookies. So good for them. They figured it out, and we bought in. So now that you're thinking about Oreos, I might lose you, but the point is this. We have verse 20 and 21. These are the top cookie. These verses are the top cookie. And then verses 31 through 35, that's the bottom cookie. And verses 22 through 30, that's the cream. Get what I'm saying? And so last week, we looked at the figurative middle of the Oreo in this passage, the real meat of the passage. And what the middle part of the passage is teaching is that Jesus is not a liar, He's not a charlatan. He's not performing great miracles by the power of Satan. He's not possessed by Beelzebul. He's, his binding of the strong man, an, al- an analogy he uses in verse 29, is being done because he's more powerful than the strong man. He possesses great power because he is Lord. He is God. And his works, he does them in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the point of the passage. That's the awesome double stuff cream of this chiasm. And that's what we covered last week. But today, we're going to look at the top and the bottom of the cookie, and we'll see that the verses that sandwich that truth I just spoke of, they're actually very poignant as well. And more than speaking to the nature of who Jesus Christ is and where his power comes from, these verses today speak to the nature of those who follow him. The nature of those who follow him. So go ahead and turn to Mark 3, if you haven't already, and we're going to read these verses together. We'll read verses 21, 20 and 21, and then jump down to verse 31. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, Then he went, he being Jesus, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and sister. And mother. This is God's word. 
So we're going to talk about this passage, these two sections, these two sandwiches, under three headings this morning. An intervention, some instruction, and then we'll use, use verse 35 to help us with interpretation. But let me first set the scene. That's what this passage does for us there in verse 20. Mark is good at setting the scene. So it, and in the scene, it appears that Jesus, after choosing his 12 disciples, the Lord Jesus has returned again to Capernaum, likely to the house of Peter. It's a place identified as home for Jesus. But notice, he's not seeking to minister there any longer. At this point, I said this a couple of weeks ago, he's basically done ministering in Capernaum. And I say he's not ministering because thus far in the book of Mark, every scene where Jesus sets out to do ministry, his purpose is always teaching. That's what he came to do, to teach. We remember that proclamation in chapter 1, verse 38. Peter finds Jesus praying out in this desolate place, and Jesus tells, and Jesus tells Peter, no, we're not going to go back to town to do more miracles. We're going to leave and go to the other towns so that I can teach, for that is why I came out. Also in chapter 1, the first praise given to Jesus about his great power is not connected to his miracles. It's connected to his teaching. He teaches as one with authority, they said. That's what initially drew the crowds. His miracles were simply to validate his teaching. So anyway, he doesn't come home to Capernaum to do miracles, and he hasn't come back to teach. He's come to get something to eat. His focus is not ministry to the masses. It's eating and being with his newly chosen disciples. So they're at the home of Peter. The roof's been fixed, apparently. And the crowd is so great that they can't even eat. And in the midst of this scene, we have an intervention. Verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. You know what an intervention is, right? There's actually a TV program on A&E by the name Intervention. It's a very intense show. An intervention is when a group of people who love someone, when they see that their loved one is destroying themselves with an, with an addiction or a behavior or a pattern of life, when it's so bad that, that the person is endangering themselves and others, the, their closest family and friends will intervene in order to save their life, in order to get them help, in order to get them into rehab or whatever it is they need. And that's what Jesus' family has shown up to do. Rescue him from himself. They're having an intervention. And the text makes it clear. They think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. Berserk is, one of, is what one of the translations says. And if he keeps up this behavior, they know the religious leaders, the scribes, and the other people in power, if Jesus keeps stirring up the crowds, the leaders are going to kill him. So his family comes to intervene really out of a desire to protect him. They love Jesus, or at least they love the family name. And so they want to take him and put him away, get him out of the crosshairs of those in authority. And if you were here last week, you'll remember <clears throat> I said that this whole section, these 15 verses, 20 through 35, these verses embody the trilemma that was once popularized by C.S. Lewis. The trilemma is the idea that the Jesus of the Bible doesn't, doesn't give you the option to simply like him or appreciate him or refer to him as a good example or a good moral teacher. The Jesus of the Bible, he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Here in verse 21, his family says he's crazy. He's a lunatic. 
In verse 22, the scribes from Jerusalem, they've settled this man's a liar. He claims to be God, but he really is possessed by Satan. And then Jesus, in verse 29, and all along the way, proves that he is, in fact, who who he says he is. He is the Lord. And I think this is one of those details, his family thinking that he's crazy. This is one of those details that gives the Bible such a deep ring of truth to me. Because think about this. If the Bible was a fabrication, if Mark's gospel was a fabrication, just the creation of men wanting to fool everyone into thinking that Jesus was God, even though they knew he wasn't, if that's why the gospel was written, this is not the type of detail that you'd include in your lie. It's just not. Trying to propagate a lie wouldn't allow for this sort of scene because the writer would think we can't have people reading that Jesus' family thought he was crazy. We should say that those closest to Jesus, that they, that they worshipped him, that would be better. You know, a, a detail that, that they thought he was nuts, you know, that's bad PR. That's not really what we're going for. That might expose the lie that we're trying to fabricate. So let's, let's not include that. But they do include that because it happened. And they weren't propagating a lie. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell the story of Jesus. And this was a part of that story. And though it appears that the, that the best of intentions motivated Jesus' family, maybe, it appears that way they had still misread Jesus. He was not out of his mind. He was simply carrying out the Father's will. That's what he was doing. Let me just apply that just for a second. Because perhaps when you came to know Christ, when you came to trust in Jesus and follow God, Perhaps those closest to you applied some pressure for you to depart from God's will. Perhaps they thought you'd gone a little bit crazy. They might have said, hey, you're kind of taking this God thing a little too seriously. Why do you pray all the time? Why are you spending so much time at church? Please, stop talking about the Bible. Some of you have had that experience. Your family has come after you, and it's because a desire to follow God's will has made you misunderstood to them. It was the same with Jesus. They've come after him. They don't understand his desire to follow God's will. And it's good to remember at this point that some of the original readers of Mark's account, they would have been those suffering persecution in Rome. Remember, Nero was brutal to Christians. He would impale them and cover them in pitch and then light the Christians on fire to to, to provide illumination for his garden parties. He would let wild dogs loose upon them or or he would put them in the Colosseum to be be made a public spectacle of. And so no doubt the, the families of these early Roman Christians thought that these people were out of their minds to risk such a fate. And, they would, and they, they would therefore pressure them to depart from God's will, to stop meeting with the church, to give up and recant on their confession of Jesus. So that's the intervention. Jesus' family has come to seize him, to arrest him. Next we have an, an instruction. Jumping down to the bottom cookie of the Oreo, the story begins again in verse 31. And in verse 32, word gets to Jesus that his mother and brothers are outside and they are seeking him. And just, just one thing as a side note, two things actually. This passage, verses 20 through 35, actually 
dismantles two doctrines taught by the Catholic Church. The first is related to the sermon last week, and it's the issue of the unpardonable sin. Most Catholics would tell you they believe the unpardonable sin is suicide. Maybe you've heard that before. Their logic says that murder is a mortal sin. They have categories for sin. Murder is a mortal sin, and if you commit suicide, you commit murder. And since after you commit suicide, you're dead, you can't go to the priest to ask for forgiveness, so therefore you die in your sins and you're unforgiven. Now, we don't believe that. We don't believe that because verse 28 in chapter 3 says that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. And when it says all sins, it means all sins. And if you turn to Christ in repentance and faith, you will have forgiveness for all sins, past, present, future sins. The other doctrine of the Catholic Church exposed here is tied to the fact that Jesus' mother and brothers came to him. So Jesus had siblings, half-siblings at least, you know, same biological mom. But the Catholic Church has upheld something called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that the Virgin Mary remained a virgin till her death. And that's very, very hard to explain if Jesus had siblings, right? So I didn't set out to debunk Catholic teaching this morning. This passage just sort of does it on its own, right? And the larger point, though, is his family is seeking him. And one thing to keep in mind as you read this, families in Jesus' day and families in the 21st century of the Western world where we live have very different cultural patterns. And I'm not an expert in this, but Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, as he's most often referred to, he's an Anglican. He teaches at St. Andrews in Scotland, former Bishop of Durham. He's well-versed in the context of the first century Middle East. And he says this about the family unit in this day and age. He says, The family bond was, was tight and long-lasting. It was normal for children to live close to their parents, maybe even in the same house. The family unit would often be a business unit as well, sharing everything in common. What's more, for Jews, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living. Loyalty to the family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty, loyalty to Israel as the people of God. Break the length, and you've undermined a major pillar in the way Jews in the first century think and feel about the world and themselves. So that's the context for what Jesus is about to say. It's a context in which blood wasn't just thicker than water. Bloodlines really were everything. They were everything. This is the reason two of the biblical gospels give us a genealogy, a tracing of the bloodlines of Jesus. The family grid is absolutely key to understanding the Old Testament. Who came from who, who came from who, who came from who? The tribes of Israel, these weren't just groupings, these were families. Being fiercely loyal to one's family was just entrenched in how Jews of this day lived. And so Jesus' response to the news that his mother and his brothers are outside looking for him, look at it. His response is, who are my mother and my brothers? So given that information, that's a pretty wild response. 
His family has come from Nazareth down to, to Capernaum. He likely hasn't talked to them since the start of his ministry, so 18 months or so since his baptism. And instead of being happy to see them, he answers as if he's never heard of them. So what's behind that flippant response? First, I think there's a few things he's not saying. He's not saying, I don't know my family. Of course he knows his family. He knows exactly who his mother is and who his brothers and sisters are. He hasn't gone crazy. He hasn't forgotten. He knows who they are. Nor is he showing hatred toward them. It's not that he doesn't love them anymore. He loves them a great deal. We know this because when he was hanging on the cross, according to John chapter 19, he saw Mary, and he looked at John the Apostle, and he said, Behold your mother. And he looked at Mary and said, Behold your son. And he committed his mother into the care of John. He loved her right down to the very moment of his death. So his love for his mother is not really an issue. So maybe it was his siblings. Maybe he didn't love his siblings. That makes sense, remember? Because when he went to Nazareth, after he preached in the synagogue there, his brothers tried to take him and throw him off a cliff. You know, he probably didn't, he probably didn't love his rotten brothers. No, he loved them too. In fact, he loved them right into his kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The believers are gathered in the upper room. It's the day of Pentecost. It says in verse 14, Mary was there with his brothers. He loved them to save, enough to save them. So then why did he ask, who are my mother and my brothers? I think our answer starts with thinking back to what he has just finished doing before he returned to Capernaum. Remember what he was doing? I mentioned it earlier. He was choosing his disciples. And what was the purpose of choosing 12 disciples? Why did he get specific and choose 12 and not 15 or 42 or 37? It's because he was putting an end, a symbolic end, to Israel as a nation. And in so doing, he was building a new nation, a new people. The nation of Israel had existed for thousands of years. It started as 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob, and everybody had their family affiliation. And that affiliation had been tied to where they camped as they wandered under Moses. It told them the land that they'd inherit when they arrived in Canaan. Sometimes it even, it even determined their role in society. So in choosing the 12 disciples, Jesus is symbolically reconstituting Israel, not under 12 families, but according to those who follow him and are with him and seek the Father's will. That's why he says in verse 30, 34, hear are my mother and my brothers. He's pointing to the newly chosen disciples and saying, these constitute my family. The people of God don't flow from the old covenant family system anymore. I have a new system. And it has a different basis. And it's my choice. No doubt this was a comfort to Roman Gentile believers. They might have been thinking that, that the Jews had a higher standing in the church than they did. They were the lineage. They had the patriarchs. They had the connection to the Old Testament, the bloodlines, as it were. And Jesus, with this statement, Mark, through recording it, is saying it's no longer about lineage. It's about a new family. Which brings us to the third point. Verse 35 helps us interpret who the family of God is. It helps really get underneath what Jesus is saying here. Verse 35 Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. So Jesus is saying, the relationship that matters, the relationship that genuinely connects you to me is signified by your obedience to the will of God, my Father. And when you read will of God here in this verse, don't think so much of this mysterious thing you're often trying to figure out. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret decoder ring or something you can't be sure of. The will of God is simple obedience to what is commanded in Scripture. That's the will of God. Luke 11 backs this up. Luke 11, Jesus is speaking about issues regarding demons. The Pharisees have accused him of being Beelzebul. Luke 11 is actually the parallel passage to the one we're in in Mark. And in verse 27, while Jesus is talking about all of this, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother. Man, if I had a nickel for every time my mother was told that. Anyway. Um, just kidding. That, that was a Jewish way of giving honor to Jesus and giving honor to his mother. It was a kind of Jewish blessing. And what's Jesus' response to this woman's blessing? Look at verse, well, you don't have to look there. I'll just read it for you. Verse 28 of Luke 11. Jesus says, on the contrary, if you want to talk about blessing, here's blessing. blessing are the, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what Jesus says. Don't assume blessing on my mother. It's not about family. The only relationship with Jesus that matters is the relationship of one who obeys the word of God. This is the consistent message of Jesus throughout his ministry. Matthew chapter 7, that great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he brings it to its climactic ending. Chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes, who is? It's not just name recognition, he says, It's he who does the will of my Father. That's who enters the kingdom of heaven. Always in the New Testament, salvation is ultimately demonstrated by obedience. John 8, 32. You are my true disciple if you do whatever I tell you, if you continue in my word. 1 John chapter 5. This is how we know those who love God. They obey his commands. James, he knew this principle well. James 1.22, don't be hearers of the word only, but what? Doers, lest you deceive yourselves. Some people bristle when you talk about obedience in connection to the Christian life. They bristle because they think obedience and grace, they think that they're somehow incompatible, that they're at loggerheads with one another. They rightly recognize that salvation is all of grace. It is all because of the mercy and the kindness of God. And we can't add a single thing to it. And I 100% agree with that. To add anything to it would be in conflict with Christ's perfect obedience. He earned it for us. Our obedience earns us nothing. His obedience earns us everything. Yes, totally. I completely agree. So then to arrive at, at what's really being taught here about obedience... It requires for us to reframe obedience. Because we often see obedience, our default, I think, is to see obedience as input, and then salvation or heaven is the output. I obey, then God likes me and is therefore nice to me. That's how, often we, that's, that's how we think most often. Reminds me of a show I was watching yesterday with the girls. What was the name of the show, girls? 
Lucky Dog? Lucky Dog, yeah. Uh, not really a cartoon, just a man who's training dogs, doing obedience training with, with, uh, with dogs. Dog would perform, dog would get a treat. Dog would submit and obey, he would be rewarded. That's how you train an animal, right? But in the Christian life, the paradigm gets flipped. The paradigm gets flipped. Salvation is the input, or you might say grace is the input, and then obedience becomes the output. We don't obey to get saved. We obey because we are saved. Tim Keller puts it best. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. See the difference? Just in conclusion, what ultimately then is the will of God? If doing the will of God is this great dividing line between those who are in relationship to Jesus and those who are not, what is the will of God? John chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So what is the will of the Father? It is to behold the Son. That is to assess him, to look at him carefully, thoughtfully, believe in him, and receive eternal life. Jesus said here in verse 34, the people sitting around me, they've done that. They are in relationship to me. So if your conclusion about Jesus is that he's a lunatic, you don't have a relationship to him. Jesus' family, you're not doing the will of God. If your assessment is that he's a liar, that he really wasn't who he said he was, maybe he did all the miracles, maybe not, but even, even if he did them, he performed them with, with power on loan from Satan. If that's your conclusion, you don't have a relationship to him. Scribes, you're not doing the will of God. To be in relationship to Jesus, to call him your brother, you must behold him for who he is the Lord of all, the Son of God, the authoritative King, and then you must believe and trust in everything you know to be true about him. Believe that he was the eternal second person of the Trinity. Believe that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, that he was placed in the grave, and then in the great, in the great power of rose again on the third day, ascending into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Believe that. That's the will of God. For Jesus, following the will of God, led him to a cross. And at that cross, he made an acceptable once and for all sacrifice for your sins. And without that sacrifice, you are left in those sins. You're justly condemned separated from God, deserving of hell. But by placing your faith in him, you are justified in God's sight. You're reconciled in your relationship to him. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit, given power to walk in obedience and submitting to his will. And in so doing, Jesus says, you are in my family. You are my brother. You are my sister. So to the Lord of the universe, you have an established, unending relationship. It's the will of God. We so often think about the will of God as if we're standing on the edge of a river, 
and we're trying to get to the other side, and we simply need to pick the right stones to hop across so that we can get to the other side. That's our destination. If we can just kind of choose wisely and not slip and make sure the stones are secure, then we've figured out the will of God because we've gotten to the other side. We just don't think about that. Don't don't think that way in relation to the will of God. We know what the will of God is. We don't have to guess. The will of God is the river. Jump in the river, go with the flow, and let Christ take you to what he has for you. Don't try to swim upstream. Don't try to swim to the shore. Don't try to grab onto the things to save yourself. Just trust that he is who he says he is, and he has an eternal destination for your life. Some of you have never done that. You've come to church maybe your whole life. This idea of Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, this idea of, of him coming in the likeness of men and dying on the cross for your sin, you know all that. You've assessed the material but you've never put your trust. You're still holding on to your own control, your own will, your own, your own desires. You've yet to really jump in. You can do that today. And in doing that, you're a part of God's family. You're in the will of God. Jesus calls you brother. He calls you sister. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, the eternal truth that's found here. And Lord, I pray that you would take this truth and you would embed it deeply into our hearts and minds. Lord, that you would illuminate these scriptures in ways that I have failed to do this morning. And God, if there's anyone here that has strayed from you or maybe never even put their trust in you, God, I pray that they would do your will today that they would see Christ for who he is, and they would trust and believe in everything they know about him. And God, in doing that, they would be brought into your family, eternally established as your son or your daughter. God, thank you for the blessing of being able to gather and for those that have come and invested themselves in worship and in your word and encouraging one another. I pray that we do that. Uh, as we finish up and go out from this place today. In Christ's name.